broadcasting on the eve of the election. This is the Campus Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 74, an election special, Tim Keller. Quick little edit. This was actually recorded on the eve of the election, and then I fell asleep without uploading it. And then I was going to upload it first thing Tuesday morning. I was like, ah, you know what? I'll do a little post-game analysis. And, well, here we are Wednesday morning with no post-game analysis just because there's maybe some still game left or perhaps Biden has won it depending on how a few things shake out. So I'm going to upload this now. Uh, The material is still related to Tim Keller's article in the New York Times. So we can go from there. Thanks. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Church Podcasts, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, flfnetwork.com. And if you go over to the flfnetwork.com, you can become a club member to help uh, grow our little podcast network here. And if you enter in Campus Preacher or Campus Pastor, um, you will help this little one particularly, and I forgot to turn off my phone when I started recording, so I'm getting polos, Marco Polos. And in uh, this episode, yeah, I've been the last couple of weeks been discussing the uh, argument from reason for the existence of God, and I was kind of laying some groundwork between kind of some of the metaphysical backdrop, uh, the contrast between naturalism or strands of atheism and Christianity, and then on the flip side, uh, last week brushed up a little bit more on what the nature of reason is, uh, but seeing how we are on the eve of an election, and for some people on the eve of destruction, I figured I would uh, ever so slightly just brush up on some political things, just because um, obviously it's what a lot of people are talking about, and one of the things I've seen floating around on the Twitter and a lot of comments on is... Uh, Tim Keller had an article in the New York Times opinion piece, and it's actually two years old, kind of getting resurrected. So it was originally published on September 29th in 2018, and the title is, How Do Christians Fit into the Two-Party System? They Don't. The historical Christian position on social issues don't match up with contemporary uh, political alignments. And then he kind of lays out some of that. So I want to kind of just kind of run through that article, because in, in typical Keller fashion, Everything's kind of said vague enough where everybody can kind of sign off on it. And so there's a lot there that I can agree with. There's a lot there that I I think I disagree with the implications. And so I want to um, brush on that. But before I brush on that, um, I, I just wanted to ever so briefly comment on Kamala Harris's little equality versus equity uh, idea. If you've seen that video, it's maybe a minute long, and I came across my Twitter feed, and just the way it's kind of laid out, it's, it's pretty clever. It, it even ends with like tweeting birds and kind of a utopianishy, sort of hippieish uh, sort of concept of the kind of almost like an eschatology, so to speak, if we get to this idea of equity. Um, but the reality of it is, whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, this whole concept of equity just simply is not part of reality. And that's going to be the biggest chasm all the time in these political discussions that you have, especially with the left. Um, they're going to be a bit more kind of utopian in their vision. And Thomas Sowell has a really good book called The Vision of the Anointed, where he kind of lays out uh, how, how the two visions of right and left and why, and we'll see it here with Keller when he t- brushes on package deal, why these things seem to be packaged, de- packaged deals. And the, the, the long or the short of it is Kamala Harris just kind of asserts that somehow equity 
is a place you want to get. And in many people's heads, and especially culturally in America, that is a place where a lot of people want to be. And if you ask them why, uh, they could never tell you why, because metaphysically, um, from the standpoint of either creation or evolution, you don't get there. So in creation, you get God making uh, them male and female. So at the very beginning, you have distinctions uh, there with different roles, different assignments, and then you would have had children. And uh, you know, as people would have gone and been fruitful and multiplying and spread out over the earth, you would not have had equity. Uh, you still would have had people with different gifts and talents. So think of Jesus giving some people 10 talents, some people five talents, and another person one talent. Uh, I believe that would have been there in the original creation. I believe it's also there in the, the final judgment, uh, in the eschaton. You'll have, uh, in their terms, inequality or non-equity um, in the eschaton. And so from a Christian standpoint, this, this pursuit of equity isn't really a Christian pursuit. And I'd also just say on terms of materialism, if you're an atheist, uh, you don't really get there through the process of evolution where you have the survival of the fittest. And so the very nature of us kind of, you know, Darwin would call us the higher forms of species uh, came about because of the what's inherent is that you don't have equity. And so this political system that wants to get to this place of equity truly is a social construct. And what you need to push back on is where do you get this concept of a that the equity is the chief end? And then from there, every time you try to get there in all utopian visions from Jim Jones to you know the Bolshevik Revolution to the French Revolution whatever it is it's always a bloody mess because someone has to grasp power to get there and then they end up brutalizing everybody who doesn't conform so all utopian visions uh, because they're contra gospel uh, end in death and so if you see that video just kind of keep some of those things in mind but I, I want to quickly race through this Tim Keller uh, bit. How do Christians fit into the two-party system? Uh, they don't, and obviously, on the surface of it, every Christian will sign in. There's a sense in which we don't, especially in the way he ends up uh, framing the question, um, which ends up, you know, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. So I'm just going to read it, go through paragraph by paragraph, uh, and making some comments. But I also want to make this comment, I guess, at the, at the outset. So most of you who are listening to this are at least probably Reformed-ish. Um, Reformed Baptist seems to be uh, the most people that I interact with that listen to my podcast. And then from there, some Presbyterians and a few uh, outliers here and there. But for the most part, uh, we're Reformed. And so if you're a Reformed Baptist, and we over here in the CREC are Presbyterians, we have different ecclesiologies. Uh, we have different views on how we believe the church uh, should function and what the roles are, or not necessarily how the church should function, uh, but what roles are in the church, and we're able to get along. Uh, we also have different views on the sacraments, and um, so, you know, infant baptism, uh, believer-only baptism, the nature of what the sacraments are, what's taking place in them. So we have these differences within the church, and I believe that ecclesiology and sacramentology, uh, I don't want to say are more important than our views of the civil government because Jesus is Lord, and so kind of everything matters. But there's another sense in which I want to say that sacramental, the sacraments and ecclesiology are more important. They're more ordering to our lives than the civil magistrates. And so if we can disagree on ecclesiology and the sacraments and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, I do believe we can disagree on the role of uh, civil magistrates. We can disagree on exact nature of theonomy and general equity and all that sort of stuff. Uh, whereas I feel like oftentimes when we get into these discussions— um, it becomes this absolutist sort of thing, especially if you're more theonomist-oriented. Anybody who disagrees with you is clearly compromised. Um, and I don't believe that. I'm very sympathetic to uh, strands of theonomy and Christian reconstruction and 
Uh, I love Rush Dooney. If you've never read Rush Dooney, give him a read. I enjoy reading Gary North, uh, James Jordan, uh, Gary North, and all that sort of jazz. Uh, or Greg Bonson, I think I mentioned Gary North. So, uh, so I want to give Keller credit here that Christians can view a lot of issues differently, and you don't always have explicit biblical commands on what they can and cannot do. So, for example, the theonomists oftentimes would would uh, take something akin to almost like a regulative principle of the civil magistrates, and anytime it steps out of that reign, we'd want to say it's taken on a messianic character. Um, that sounds good, and it seems forceful in rhetoric, but how would you apply that in turn to a father? So does the Bible give the father authority to give their children curfews? And what would be your proof text for that? And so if we're willing to have some family government, even church government, uh, where there's some ambiguity and we just kind of have these broader parameters that require wisdom, and even the Westminster Confession points in the direction of wisdom uh, for, for strands of uh, church government rule, I want to be able to do that with a civil magistrate. So I do want this to a certain extent, to be an in-house, obviously, discussion and debate. And this isn't just an attempt to uh, beat up on Tim Keller or anything like that, um, because there, there's a certain level in which uh, most Christians can read this and in bald, platitudinal sort of ways be like, I don't disagree with what he's saying here, because in, in a sense, he really doesn't say much. But I also say, um, if I can get behind the scenes— this is obviously written contra Donald Trump, contra Republican Party, and the reason the New York Times is publishing Tim Keller is because he serves their agenda. If Tim Keller was not serving the New York Times agenda, they would not be publishing this article or this opinion piece. Um, as we know, they don't really publish opinion pieces that they don't agree with. And so this might be a place where they're like, oh, see, look, we disagree. But the reason they can disagree with this but also publish it is because what it's seeking to do is chip away at the conservative, even Republican kind of stronghold on evangelicals sort of thing. And so they want to roll out Tim Keller. So let me roll through this, and I'm just going to read it, make a few comments here and there, and hopefully it'll help you think through some of these things. So he starts off with by saying, what should the role of Christians in politics be? More people than ever are asking that question. Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply, quote, preach the gospel, unquote. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagements are essentially casting a vote for the status quo. American churches in the ninth, early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what they call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To be political is to not be political is to be political. So, you know, if you're listening to the Fight Life Feast Network and you're tuning in the cross politic and you're tuning in here, um, it's it's not news that we believe that the gospel is political. So if you were to start in the Old Testament and begin to read what the gospel is, the gospel is a political announcement, usually the birth of a king, the end of a war, the announcement of a story. So the gospel is fundamentally a political message, and it's an announcement. So some town crier comes in, says, hear ye, hear ye, uh, the war is over. Um, and and the gospel isn't always, you know, it's not justification by faith alone in the Old Testament. It is it is a political announcement. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and he begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom, um, that deals with the—all that of that is thoroughly political. So— uh, as Christians, we we don't, or as Fight, Laugh, Feast people, uh, we don't have a view that preaching the gospel is some magic formula that fixes everything. The gospel is a political message that we in turn apply, which obviously we believe has application to the family, to the church, and to the civil magistrate. And so we are out there announcing that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
uh, not the American government, not white people, not black people, uh, but Jesus. So we're going to agree with Tim there that we want to get into politics because the gospel, there is no just preaching the gospel. It's this otherworldly affair. And if you believe that, please email me. We can talk a little bit more about it because uh, we're missing uh, from creation to redemption, which is thoroughly political. Um, then he goes on to say, the Bible shows believers as holding important posts in pagan governments. Think of Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament. Christians should be involved politically as a way of loving our neighbors, whether they believe as we do or not. To work for better public schools or for a justice system not weighted against the poor, and he stops there, or the rich, or against weighted against the rich, uh, which would be a violation of, I believe it's Leviticus 19, or to end seg- racial segregation requires political engagement. Christians have done these things in the past and should continue to do so. Nevertheless, while believers can register under a political affiliation and be active in politics, they should not identify the Christian church or faith with a political party as the one only Christian one. There are a number of reasons for this. Now, do you know anybody that is genuinely advocating that a political party is the Christian one? Even if everybody tomorrow morning wakes up, votes for Donald Trump, I don't know a single Christian that thinks in any way, shape, or form that becoming a Christian means identifying with the Republican Party. Now, most Christians I know would say, here are the implications of Christianity. You become pro-life. You become, you know, even the Republicans have caved basic on gays, marriage, and stuff like that. Um, it means this. And so the in general, the more conservative party here in the United States um, the, the Christian's going to, I believe, swing that way. And, and the place where it might get a little dicey um, are in things like po- politics and the poor, or not politics, but economics and the poor. And we're going to look at that a little bit further as Tim goes on. But then he goes on to say one reason, so here are the reasons he gets into. One is that it gives those considering the Christian faith the, the strong impression that to be converted, they need not only believe in Jesus, but also become members of the fill-in-the-blank party. It confirms what many skeptics want to believe about religion, that is merely one more voting block aiming for power. Now, obviously, and I do think that's one of the things that we need to consider as we're evangelizing and we're talking to people. Um, Many of you are thinking about things that a lot of even your brother and sister evangelicals are not thinking about. You're thinking about homeschooling. You're thinking about the role of civil magistrate in government and how you disciple your children. And not that other people aren't necessarily thinking about those things, but it's often kind of a little more periphery, and you're a little more self-conscious about that. that and that's a good thing. Um, but oftentimes when we evangelize, we are trying to get people to get a whole enchilada down when the reality of it is uh, they need to hear about forgiveness or grace or mercy. So, so to an extent, I can appreciate strands of what he's trying to do here because it's so easy for us to try to give someone a whole enchilada that in evangelism somehow we're now brushing on homeschooling. And if you have somebody sitting across the table from you in homeschool, he's never been on the radar before, calling them to repentance and faith, if you think day one deals with homeschooling, obviously we're missing the mark a little bit. And and so we need grace and mercy with one another, and what does it look like to disciple people and bring them along? Because being here in our circles, generally speaking, most of us got here over a several-year period of studying. We don't just like wake up first day of being a believer and have adopted all these new beliefs. So obviously we're going to agree with Tim here, but the thing we want to push back on here is he says, it confirms what many skeptics want to believe about religion. That is merely one more voting block aiming for power. Now, when the skeptic objects to us that we want power and we're trying to get political power, um, 
that objection is really based in the root that they want political power. So if we sign up to be the anti-slavery party and we want to abolish slavery, the skeptics aren't like, oh, they're one more voting block. They're like, yes, they're voting like us. So when they offer up that critique, they're offering up from a position that they want to deconstruct you and make you psychologically like, oh, no, am I trying to seek power and control people? Well, anybody who's voting in politics is seeking power. That's what politics are. That's what the civil magistrate does. It imposes power by force, uh, their will in the world. And so anybody who is voting tomorrow, be it Republican, Democrat, Green Party, Libertarian, in some sense, they are all voting for power. So this idea that somehow the Christians are the bad people who are jockeying for power is simply misdirected. And if we back it up to his opening paragraph regarding slavery, no one would leave this conversation and be like, oh no, those bad Christians want power to abolish slavery. Now, maybe the slave owners might, uh, but are we too worried about those skeptics on the slavery issue? Eh, probably not. So then he goes on to say, another reason not to align the Christian faith with one party is that most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. And here's where a big rub is going to begin to come in uh, between us. This does not mean that the church can never speak on social, economic, and political realities, because the Bible often does. Racism is a sin, violating the second of the two great commandments of Jesus, to love your neighbor. The biblical commands to lift up the poor and to defend the rights of the oppressed are moral imperatives for believers. For individual Christians to speak out against egregious violations of these moral requirements is not optional. And we're going to totally agree with that. I, 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 there's not really anything in there without reading into it that I would disagree with. But then he goes on to say, however, there are many possible ways to help the poor. But ask yourself this, are there many possible ways to address racism? Are there many possible ways to address oppression? And if you begin to ask that question, because it sounds good, there are many possible ways to help the poor, um, what it does, he kind of tries to put a little pebble in the shoe where like, oh, is there explicit biblical command of how we help the poor, or is there many possible ways? And he goes on to say, should we shrink government and let private capital markets allocate resources, or should we expand the government and give the state more of the power to redistribute wealth? Or is the right path one of the many possibilities in between? The Bible does not give exact answers to these questions uh, for every time, place, and culture. Now, in a sense, we're going to agree that the Bible does not lay out exactly how we address the poor. So if we look at the gleaning laws in the Old Testament, you know, what would be their application today to people living in cities? It's going to be pretty sparse to be like, oh yeah, go ahead, city dwellers, keep the edge of your fields and let the poor glean it. And well, there's nothing there to glean. Um, but the place we're going to disagree is this. So the, when he says the Bible does not give exact answers, okay, we can kind of agree, to these questions for every time, place, and culture. What he's kind of missing here, I believe, is a Protestant political philosophy. What he is not seeking to address by kind of getting into particular issues and just saying, well, the, uh, the Bible doesn't speak to these things specifically, what he never does here is ask the question, what is the biblical role of the civil magistrate in society? And what is the role of the church in society? What is the role of the individual? What is the role of the family? And the minute you begin to ask those things, we're still going to be in a position where we allow a little bit of leeway, obviously, because even how you structure your family is going to be different than the way other Christians in your uh, church structure your family. And there is no one-size-fits-all that every kid has to go to bed at 7 o'clock. And if they go to bed after 7 o'clock, then you know the, the parents being disobedient to God. So we want there to be liberty, uh, genuine Christian liberty on you know family government, uh, church, some church government, and also civil magistrate government. But what he's not doing here is seeking to set forth a normative role in the civil magistrate. And that's why he's able to kind of ask these questions that make you go, well, how do I, yeah, how do we address this? Well, he's not addressing the root issue of the role of the civil magistrate in society. And then he goes on, so, so even this, the Bible does not give it exact answers, but listen to this next paragraph. The Bible does not give exact answers to these questions for every time, place, and culture. Then he goes on to say, I know of a man from Mississippi who was a conservative Republican and traditional Presbyterian. He visited the Scottish Highlands 
and found the churches there were as strict as orthodox as he had hoped. No one was um, as much turned on a television on Sunday. Everyone memorized catechisms and scriptures. But one day, he discovered that the Scottish Christian friends he admired were, in his view, socialist. Their understanding of government economic policy and the state's responsibility was, by his lights, very left-wing, yet also grounded in the Christian convictions. He returned to the United States not more politically liberal, but in his words, humbled and chastened. Uh, he realized that thoughtful Christians, all trying to obey God's call, could reasonably appear at different places on the political spectrum with loyalties to different political strat- strategies. Now, this is purely anecdotal. Um, and so it's this is not a biblical—the point here is it's this is not a biblical argument. So for me to go to Scotland and recognize that Christians are doing something there that they're not doing here— it does not mean that what they're doing is normative or right or even within the pale of orthodoxy. All it means is, all right, here's a group of people that are trying to serve Jesus, and descriptively, they're just way off the mat. It doesn't mean that what they're saying is prescriptively correct. And so you know, this is obviously an extreme outlier, but if you were to visit the church at Corinth and you have them in their abuse of speaking in tongues, you go back to your church that speaks in tongues and you know, Galatia or whatever. And so there you show back up like, oh, over in Corinth, they were, you know, here's how they're doing their church service. Well, the way they're doing a church service is wrong. So the idea that people who are Christians who are trying to obey Jesus and trying to honor him come up with some really wacky ideas, including baptism of the dead, uh, doesn't mean that is actually normative for us. So we can look at those Scotsmen in the Scottish Highlands, but yep, they're trying to serve Jesus, but boy, are they economically confused. And I feel that way oftentimes when I'm listening to N.T. Wright, and even if you listen to N.T. Wright when he was like, oh, uh, I was going to try to do a British accent, I'm not very good, oh, chip, chip, cheerio, matey, uh, did I say matey? Um, we, he, they, I don't know what I'm saying. Those those, uh, those Americans and their views of like inerrancy, he always kind of wants to take a swipe, like, oh, that's such a fundamentalist American issue. Um, well, are the Americans right? And so it's, it's kind of funny where he dismissed a major issue like the authority of the scriptures or the nature uh, of the scripture as, but here, you know, here on economics, uh, we can kind of be like, oh, well, they're just radically different. So uh, that idea that it is a cultural uh, condition, I just think is errant. The question is, do the scriptures speak on economic issues and do the scriptures speak against socialism? I would say the very nature of scripture and private property would speak out against socialism. And then from there, obviously, things like taxes begin to get in. And that's a further from this discussion here, but all that stuff is tied in. And he goes on to say here, Another Christian, another reason Christians these days cannot allow the church to be fully identified with any particular party is a problem of what the British ethicist James Mumford calls package deal ethics. Increasingly, political parties insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all their approved positions. And we should probably agree with that. As Christians, there are people who can radically disagree with us that on social issues uh, they can agree with us on or work with us on, and we should be willing to work with other people. So this emphasis on package deals puts pressure on Christians in politics. For example, following both the Bible and the early church, Christians should be committed to racial justice and the poor, but also to the understanding that sex is only for marriage and for nurturing family. One of those views seems liberal, and the others looks oppressively conservative. He knows his audience, and so let's just go with the oppressively conservative one. Just seems liberal, you know what I mean? Just seems that way, where this sex thing is, oh, that's so oppressively conservative. So, And that that's actually good on his part. He knows who he's writing to. He's writing to people who read the New York Times, and so that's the sort of thing that flusters me, but but the reality of it is those people are going to hear him appropriately. So we want to give him credit there, actually, even though it rubs me the wrong way. But I think he's actually rhetorically right. Uh, the historical Christian position on social issues do not fit contemporary political alignments. Now, and this 
as we mentioned earlier. So are there different ways to address the poor? Um, no conservative I know, no Republican I know, no Christian I know is like, oh yeah, I don't care about the poor. It's the question when it comes up in the context of politics is what's the role of the state in there? And so the left, as he even says here, seems liberal because what he means by that is the state taking on certain roles in looking after the poor or the state taking on roles in quote unquote racial justice. That's not defined. It's just kind of thrown out there. Who knows what racial justice actually is? Um, and then from there, the conservative part, when we bring up sex, it's usually in the context, again, of the state saying, oh, no, we should teach our children gay sex. We should teach our children sodomy. We should – and we just – you know, that there is no male or female, and mo- Heather has two mommies and all that sort of jazz. So so it's in that context politically when those things come up that we kind of push back in certain ways. But I would just say there's nothing inherently liberal, and we need to push back on this at every point. There's nothing inherently liberal about looking after the poor. The Christian is zealous for looking after the poor. Paul tells uh, Galatians that the apostles, they were eager to look after the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. James tells us that uh, religion that's pure and undefiled looks after the orphan and the widow to keep self unstained from the world. So the Christian needs to be zealous for looking after the poor. We just want to make the argument, no, free market capitalism— is the best way to look after the poor because free market capitalism creates the most jobs and the best way to alleviate poverty is not through wealth reallocation or redistribution uh, but through the creation of capital more capital alleviates poverty western cultures with traditionally more capitalistic economies as well as a christian ethic uh, has alleviated more poverty than the rest of the world who are still struggling through these things because they've been looking for wealth transfers or government control and all that sort of stuff so we want to maintain nope we're zealous for looking after the poor but it's through private property, uh, capitalism, uh, eradicating poverty through uh, the creation of work that we want to address that issue. And then racial justice, you know, that's just way too vague for me to address here. And then finally, he goes on to say, so Christian are pushed towards, towards two main options. One is withdraw and try to be apolitical. Um, okay, there may be a season for that. I'm sure the Christians in China, to a certain extent, uh, as far as participating in that beast system, they could be considered apolitical, but as they're gathered to worship and preaching, they are being political. Uh, the second is to assimilate and fully adopt one party's whole package in order to have your place at the table. Neither of these options is valid, and that's probably, uh, regarding the second, is probably true. In the Good Samaritan parable told in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus points us to a man risking his life to give material help to someone of a different race and religion. Jesus forbids us to withhold from our neighbors, and this will inevitably require that we participate in political processes. If we experience exclusion and even persecution for doing so, we are assured that God is with us, and that some will still see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And then I I think he's going to be right here. He goes on to say, if we are only—but it drives me nuts because it's that third way. If we are only offensive or only attractive to the world and not both, we can be sure we are failing to live as we ought. And I would just say, in general—and Keller gets a little bit— so like a few years ago when he got pushed back for being in the PCA, and he received maybe the Abraham Kuyper Award at Princeton, and then there was some pushback that I think they ended up taking the award from him or whatever it was because some people didn't like that he didn't ordain gays and uh, women, and so he got some pushback. So he he is marginally offensive, but most of the time when I hear him speak, you know, contra Doug Wilson's No Quarter November, um, 
he is, he's just kind of, you can listen to him for five or six minutes, be like, wait, so what is it that you believe? Um, so he can be confusing there. So anyway, then he goes on to say, the gospel gives us the resources to love people who both uh, reject our beliefs and us personally, 100%. So we should all agree with that. Christians should uh, think of how God rescued them. He did it not by taking power, but by coming to earth, losing glory and power, serving and dying on a cross. How did Jesus save? Not with a sword, but with the nails in his hands. So I don't disagree. Uh, we obviously believe that's what the gospel is. Jesus laid down his life, um, but then he was given all authority on earth. But again, the issue that he's not addressing there, uh, how did Jesus save us? Not with a sword. To an extent, true, but on the flip side, if you ask the question, what's the role of the civil magistrate in society, he's still not addressing that issue. And he's not addressing that issue because the minute you start to do that, he has to get more specific. So everything in here is pretty vague that almost, if you're right-wing, left-wing, can almost sign on. If you're, you know, if you're left-wing, you're kind of like, oh, this that sex thing's a little weird. And, you know, yeah, that is oppressively conservative. And then maybe if you're on the right and you're reading him, as he's kind of somewhat suggesting it here um, regarding the poor and racial justice, you're kind of like, eh, Tim's a little bit off mark. But why is he not trying to lay out a, a Christian political philosophy? And that's the main problem with what he's doing here, that he's he's trying to stay above the fray by not being specific. Um, but let me just read the end of Romans 12, and then we're going to get into Romans 13 just briefly. But he says, and here's where Keller's right, and I think you know, he's trying to get at here. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Okay, so we don't avenge ourselves. We leave it to the wrath of God. He goes on to say, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And I think all of us would do well to kind of hear that. We're fight, laugh, feast people. We love the fight. Um, I don't know if we always love the idea that fighting is giving Antifa a cold glass of water rather than a boot in the ass or something like that. Uh, so the, but anyway, so, but that's the way to really heap burning coals on their heads. He goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Then he goes on to say, let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that have exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror of good tonic, but bad. Would you have no fear of those who are in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant or minister for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain for he is the minister of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So, when Paul tells us in Romans 12 to leave room for God's wrath and vengeance is the Lord's, then he goes on to say, well, that's the role of the civil magistrate. So as Christians, we are not into vigilante justice. And so back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I felt like there were a couple you know, abortion clinics being shot up and being blown up. And as Christians, we're not vigilante justice like that. We appeal to the civil magistrates to do their role. And so Tim's end here and kind of the role of Christian, I, I just kind of feel like he kind of collapses too many categories. He's not being precise, and he's not driving at what the nature of the civil magistrate is. And I think he would actually serve the church better by laying out the role of the civil magistrate, the normative role in the civil magistrate is execute wrath on evildoers. What is an evildoer? Then we can go through those who oppress the poor, those who do, you know, are racial violence and, you know, murder and all that sort of stuff. And then from there, uh, you're kind of blind to justice. So, okay, did that person murder that person? We don't care if they're white or black. We don't care if they're rich or poor. Uh, the issue is here's a murder and here's why it's wrong. Here's why it's unjust. So that's my basic take on what Tim Keller did here. I think he's 
completely misdirected. He, you know, in vague platitudes sort of way, um, I can almost sign off on everything in this article. Uh, but the minute you try to tease out the implications, that's where he's missing the mark. So that's this episode of the Pan- Campus Reach Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at CampusPreacher.com, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on uh, Instagram, and then Keith Darrell on the Facebook. Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next week. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can Cause the good God in heaven needs us, so we're in